Dr. Allison is a professor of ecology in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology with a joint appointment in the Department of Earth System Science. In 2013, Dr. Allison was named an Early Career Fellow of the Ecological Society of America. As part of the University of California's Carbon Neutrality Initiative, Dr. Allison was named the UC Irvine Climate Action Champion in 2016. He teaches ecosystem ecology and directs the Ridge to Reef graduate training program. His research addresses the resilience of microbial communities to drought and the effect of rapid climate change on carbon losses from Southern California ecosystems. Professor Stephen Allison, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. The human eye, as you know, is limited, but I feel like if we could only see the network and place that's going on in the soil, you know, on and in our bodies and all around us, I think we may have a deeper respect for nature and our microbial friends. Can you just outline some of the ways in which we should be appreciative of the microbial life and, and also how it could contribute to mitigating climate change? Microbes have been around on the planet for billions of years. They were our original inhabitants uh, and actually created the oxygen that we breathe today. So they've been a key part of our planet for many, many years. And Today, they continue to serve us and provide lots of benefits that we make use of each and every day. So there are specific applications, but there are also a lot of microbes that occur naturally in all environments, you know, from the deep ocean all the way to farm fields and, of course, even the, the human body. And I'm particularly interested in the microbes that, that live in soil, so bacteria and fungi. Uh, there are other protists and small organisms there as well but they have a really important role in the global carbon cycle, which of course is intimately related to climate change. And if we can understand them, that might give us some insight into you know, how the climate will change in the future and how we might have to plan for that. But we could also maybe use the tremendous genetic and chemical biological potential of microbes to even solve some of our climate problems and contribute to healthier soils that can also contribute to greater food security you know, helping us feed a hungry planet and doing all this without generating so many greenhouse gas emissions uh, using so many pesticides and providing inputs that uh, may run off and cause pollution and other problems in our in our food system. I mean, I feel really if we could harness it, we could solve a lot of our problems. I think some people call them like a wet artificial intelligence. It's interesting how they can, they're so small, but they can influence us. Can you talk about how microbes can somehow contribute to rewiring neural pathways in our brain? And some people say it can alleviate depression or anxiety or change our eating habits. Right. Yeah. There are a tremendous variety of microbes that live in our guts uh, on our skin, you know, all parts of our body and medical microbiologists have been studying them for quite some time now. Now I'm an ecologist, so I'm particularly interested in how different species interact. And so it turns out that our bodies are basically a whole ecosystem of microbes that, that live with us, uh, most of them very peacefully and, and helpfully. Occasionally, you know, we have pathogens uh, like the coronavirus or other pathogens that may negatively affect us. But most of our microbiome, the collection of microbes that live with us, are actually helping us fending off pathogens in a lot of cases, helping our immune system to tune the response 
so that we don't have autoimmune disorders or allergies. And microbes, of course, help us digest our food and that may regulate health outcomes like obesity. So having a healthy microbiome is really a key part of, of our human health. So yeah, there are definitely studies coming out of the medical literature, looking at all of the components of our human microbiome and how that affects everything from you know, the heart, cardiovascular system to the brain. And you know, the, a lot of these studies are still in their early phases, but it does look like you know, our, our gut microbes in particular, you know, because they so importantly impact our physiology, uh, that can impact all parts of our body from our, you know, our hearts to our, our brains. And it seems like there's this kind of complex communication taking place. The language, some they say the mycorrhizal network, so there's a different way of communicating. Can you just unpack the ways in which that microbial life communication works? It's a really interesting field. And, you know, if you think about, if you try to think on a, a small scale, you know, on a scale where microorganisms are actually interacting, and that's largely a chemical scale. And so there are a lot of metabolites or molecules that microbes produce and exchange, and that's a part of their day-to-day -day life, right? They are trying to sense their environment, right? They're single cells in a lot of cases. So they're putting out signals that uh, they may use to collect information about their environment, and those signals may be picked up by other microorganisms as well. And there are lots of ways that the, the signals can pass around. And they may just be released out of the cell to go out into the, the great unknown. But you mentioned the mycorrhizal fungi. So those are fungal microbes that grow like tiny roots uh, throughout the soil and make a vast network that actually can connect different plant roots to each other. And so those are like super highways that move metabolites, you know, different chemical compounds, sugars, and nutrients from one place to another. So the, the fungi are doing that for their own benefit. And those, those interchanges also help the, the plants that they associate with, be they uh, trees or crop plants in an agricultural system. So microbes are really good at producing a huge array of different chemical signals and using those in, in lots of creative ways to, um, to sense their environment and to alter their environment. And that, that happens differently for say bacteria versus those mycorrhizal fungi. But there are a lot of studies looking at, you know, how microbes use these signals and again, how we might even leverage some of that for our own. It's so interesting because certain animal species are very attuned. I mean, must be able to read or, or sense the uh, microbiomes. And I'm not sure how this comes to play in terms of medical diagnosis, but some animals like dogs or whatever can sense if someone's unwell, but we wouldn't know, but they could sense well in advance. I don't know how that comes into play in terms of our wellness. I guess we're more microbes than others. <laughs> what we, we're more microbe than anything else. I guess we're just a collection of microbes. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's partly true. So there are more microbe cells in our body potentially than there are human cells. Of course, our human cells are a lot bigger. Uh, so that it's not, it's not like we're necessarily all microbe, but I think what you're getting at here is the idea of these chemical signals. So the microbes that live in the soil or the microbes that live in our armpits, right? They are doing their thing. They're doing metabolism. They're producing these chemical signals. And some of those signals have odors and you know, for instance, your dog, you know, your dog can sense those odors at extremely low levels. And, you know, the dog knows it's highly sensitive. And so the dog is probably picking up 
the, the combination of chemical signals that are being excreted by your microbiome. And diseases or other health factors may influence and change that, that mix of signals that your microbiome is producing. And so the, yeah, an animal may be able to sense that, that change. Just like if we took that gas sample, you know, for example, the, the lung gas samples from cystic fibrosis patients, they have a unique chemical signal that's derived from the, the bacteria that are infecting the lung. And so they change the profile of the fingerprint of metabolites that are coming out of the lung. And so we can run that through a fancy mass spectrometer and get that chemical signal directly and measure it. But a dog nose is basically a very sensitive <laughs> mass spectrometer that can sense uh, the, the different chemicals coming out of an, an altered or uh, disease-affected microbiome and, and human patient. And has there been studies about the microbiomes of those inhabitants of cities compared to those who live in the countryside, those who are exposed to a lot of contaminants, you know, all the pollution of city and noise, and, and I guess what we imagine is, you know, being closer and more in harmony with nature? Yeah, I think there are a lot of studies uh, looking at different population groups and how their microbiomes, especially their gut microbiomes, change. There are studies that look at you know people who live with with a dog and those that don't, and you know how close you know my microbiome might be to my kid's microbiome if we have a dog in the house or not. So yeah, there there are quite a few of these studies as physicians and the, the medical microbiologists start to take a more ecological perspective on this field. So if you compare, basically as a, as a microbial ecologist, if we compare one environment to another, we almost always find that they're different in terms of the, the composition of their microbes or the properties of the system. So you know, that, that isn't surprising, but what's really interesting is to figure out, well, why are they different? You know, how, how are they different specifically in their genetic potential and in their potential to evolve or adapt, the potential to affect you know, either the human health or in the environment, you know, the, the, the key the cycles of different elements that we're interested in. So you know, what we do know is that, for example, populations with vastly different diets, you know, so those that might have a vegetarian diet or those that live you know, in, a, in a different country on a different continent, they do have different uh, gut microbes than those in the you know, Western hemisphere in the United States or something like that. Uh, we also know that you know, there's a lot of variation in the, the gut microbiomes of infants, you know, so as they get their natural flora and fauna established, there's a, a bit of random, randomness in there and that can interact with you know, whether the, the mother is breastfeeding or bottle feeding. Uh, there's studies on cesarean section versus vaginal birth that show differences in the, the infant microbiome. So yeah, there are a lot of, of population and demographic factors that can affect the microbiome. But what's, what's clear is that you know, there are healthy microbiomes that can prevent disease outcomes, and then there are disease states that actually um, are bad news and need to be addressed with, with various treatments. So, so there are definitely differences across, across populations. 
mean, we're talking a lot about the health of gut microbiomes, but I'm curious, I know that you focus on soil. Do you see a lot of variation or is there any kind of predictive quality between what we would consider to be like healthy soil or a healthy environment and the microbiome of that for not healthy? Yeah, absolutely. And we have to be a little bit careful in defining what we mean by healthy, because as an ecologist, I think about health as a certain set of metrics or variables that we can measure and say, oh, this one's higher or lower than that one. And that's going to have this particular impact. So for example, you know, one of the things that, that soils do, which is really valuable, is provide nutrients for plants to grow. So we want the microbiomes in soils to be cycling nutrients and making those available for plants, you know, whether they're crops or forests or you know, natural fields, whatever the ecosystem is. So when we say healthy, you know, I, one aspect of a healthy soil might be that the microbiome can cycle nutrients efficiently and provide those nutrients in a form that plants can use, and also in a form that isn't going to have negative impacts, right? Because sometimes if you have too many nutrients, they end up running off into streams and lakes and the ocean where they cause algal blooms and other problems. So we want uh, the microbiomes to be providing that, that service, generating those nutrients for plants to use when they need them and, and growing big and healthy. So that's one aspect of soil health. Another aspect of soil health is the amount of carbon that's stored there. So carbon storage in soil is good, not just as a way to mitigate climate change, but also because it helps crop plants and other plants grow better. The more organic matter, the richer that soil is, the better growth medium it is for, for plants because it holds water better, it holds nutrients better, it's more easy for roots to move through it. So that's, that's what we want to foster in our soil and microbes, you know, including those mycorrhizal fungi, other types of fungi that kind of glue the soil together and hold it together. And all microbes are cycling carbon and making these chemical compounds. Like we were talking about those signals before, you know, some of these, these metabolites can uh, interact with the soil and help to build up the organic material in the soil. So it's making that, that dark, rich, black humus material which has a nice smell to it, which really grows plants well and we aim for in your compost pile or something. And you know, that, that is a really healthy feature of, of a soil that also helps us fight climate change. So I was reading a little bit on your website and I saw that you were doing research into microbial communities after droughts in Southern California. And I was just curious, have you done any studies on the changes or like the recovery of microbial communities after the huge forest fires that have been happening in California? Well, I'm actually working on a grant proposal to study that in more detail. So I've been looking into that field a bit lately. So hopefully if the grant proposal is funded, then yes, I will be <laughs> looking at that specifically. But my postdoctoral advisor, Kathleen Tracedor, uh, has looked at fungal communities and how they respond to fire. And of course, many other scientists have examined that question as well. So I can tell you a little bit about what, what happens there and what we're expecting to see in this proposal. Fire is a big disturbance to, of course, the above ground parts of the ecosystem, like the trees or the, the grass and shrubs. Uh, but it does also disturb the microbes below ground. And it does that in a couple of different ways. So one way, of course, is direct heating. As the fire goes through, it makes the soil surface hot and that can kill off uh, certain microbes. 
But, you know, if it's a fast moving fire, like the ones we have here, you know, brush fires uh, in Southern California, the, the heat doesn't actually penetrate that far. So the, the microbes, you know, beyond the first couple of inches of soil are probably fine. But the fire also has other big impacts. First of all, it may kill or knock back at least the plants that are growing there. So all those microbes that associate with the plant roots, uh, they're going to be impacted if those roots die or change their abundance. The other thing that happens is the types of litter material, the dead plant material, the, the surface material that's coming into the soil is now changed. It's been uh, removed by burning and combustion or it's been charred and so now we have a bunch of like black char and soot that's coming into the, the surface of the soil. So that changes the, the food sources for the microbes that are living in the surface. So you've got these, these physical effects of temperature, you know, the, the heat shock on the surface, you've got the, the change in the, the plants that are associating with microbes below ground, and then you've got these differences in the, the uh, food sources that are coming in uh, from the surface. So all those factors mean that it's a pretty big shock to, to microbes. Now, the worse the fire, the bigger the shock is going to be. So here, like I said, in Southern California, we have these kind of fast moving brush fires and grass fires and, you know, they, they're kind of temporary shock and it seems like the microbes actually bounce back pretty quickly from, from those fires. But if you think about a forest fire, like, you know, the campfire, the other uh, fires we've had over the past couple of years in the, in the Western United States, I imagine that those have much bigger impacts on the, the surface soil because they can, keep burning, right? The, the organic layer on the forest floor will just keep uh, smoldering for maybe days. And then that really heats up the surface soil a lot and, and down much further. And so that's where you see you know, pretty big changes. There are actually these microbes that are fire loving. So they, they bloom or sprout <laughs> after a intense fire. And there are even uh, some really popular ones like the morel uh, mushrooms that that are a delicacy to eat, those only come up in the year or so after a forest fire. So there are entire groups of microbes that are specialists that, that like those post-fire conditions and they, they emerge all of a sudden and then disappear until the next fire, maybe 50 or 100 years later. So it, it definitely has a big impact. Uh, fires, fires impacting us all, but certainly impacting the microbes as well. It's miraculous to think that there, you know, the the beauty of the natural world just never ceases to amaze me. That there's a fire, you think such devastation, but here's the moral mushrooms coming in, and you know how it how it settles its balance. This this delicate ecosystem. When you were talking there about soil health, I was wondering. We're all, you know our population is rising and a lot of people are looking at technological solutions or you know, vertical farms is something that people are investing in. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that for soil health. Is there, you know, can you get the level of biodiversity? Are there so certain elements uh, for soil health that couldn't be obtained in you know, a high rise farm? You know, and what are the, the benefits? You know? mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I think that's an area where we microbial ecologists should be weighing in, right? Because there's gotta be a lot of creative ways to address our sustainability needs. And I personally think that, you know, vertical gardens would, would be a, a great thing if, if more people had those because 
then they can produce food locally. They can be involved in the production of their own food. And you know, the carbon footprint will be lower and the, the health impacts will be positive. But we need to know, well, what, what is a healthy microbiome for a rooftop garden or you know, a vertical garden? You know, because those plants are going to be growing in some substrate, they're going to have a microbiome. And there are people interested in, in that question. In fact, you know, some of my former colleagues have done studies on rooftop microbiomes in urban areas. I have a graduate student, uh, Andy Nugent, who is just about to publish a paper on the microbiomes in urban systems, so in our cities. And there's actually not as much work done as we need to, to know to answer questions like that. Because you know, it's definitely going to matter that we have the right conditions, the right microorganisms paired up with those vertical gardens and kind of creative ways of producing local food. You know, of course, if you have your own traditional garden in a, in a soil, then you know, there's lots of things you can do to cultivate you know, a healthy soil and healthy microbes, you know, adding compost and you know, per, you know, avoiding uh, pesticides and chemical fertilizers and all those things to make sure that we're providing all those benefits in something like a, a rooftop garden or a, a garden wall that may require adding specific types of microbes. Maybe we need to add you know, the, the mycorrhizal fungi that associate with each specific plant that you're trying to grow. Or maybe we need to add some helper bacteria that, you know, capture and provide the nutrients uh, to those plants. Maybe they even help fix nitrogen, which means, you know, take nitrogen directly out of the air, which is useless to plants in that form, and turn it into fertilizer, right? There are microbes that do that in agricultural soils and, you know, the ones that associate with, with our legume plants. Maybe we need some of those in these uh, vertical garden walls. But I don't think that there's been enough studies done yet to really be sure what are the, the indicators of a healthy soil in that tiny, you know, tiny volume that you need to, to have in a vertical garden. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly compelling when you think of, oh, the runoff could be used for, you know, it's, it's not the loss. There's many elements, but it does make me wonder about how it's not the same conditions of having a wide open field and the air and the sunlight is not, you know, you have to engineer to get all those things in the right dosages. So it, it's good. To, I, I, I wish, and I, I feel I am, that microbial biologists really need to have a seat at that table so that we do it right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think also, I mean, it's great to think about these, you know, smaller scale farming and you know, urban agriculture and such, but you know, the, the reality is that we have, almost 8 billion people on the planet and that number is still growing. And so what we really need are microbial ecologists to be thinking about solutions for feeding that, that huge population at a large scale, especially in uh, lower income countries that are still developing their agricultural system. Because we can't, we can't you know, double our food supply and food production by just adding you know, chemical fertilizers everywhere and you know, high intensity pesticides. We need to think about ways to be smart with our microbes and, and use them to work together so that they can provide some of that nutrient requirement, nutrient demand for crops so they can you know, prevent greenhouse gases from coming out of those agricultural soils as they're intensively cultivated. Um, and so we can provide nutritious food to all the people who need it because you know, food security is still a huge issue for you know, over 800 million people in the world. So we, we need to really pay attention to them as well and make sure that the, 
the microbial technologies as they develop and evolve are available to the, the developing world to make sure that they, they have access to that, that food supply in a sustainable way. My name is Corinna Howell, and I'm a recent graduate with a degree in biochemistry. As I progressed through my studies, I came to really appreciate how complex of a system our bodies are, and honestly, how much of a miracle it is that our biochemistry enables us to live and function as we do. The complexity of our biological system is simply astounding. As I got to listen to and interview Dr. Stephen Allison, I came to appreciate how microbes play into this complex system as well. As Dr. Allison explained, microbes play a vital role in our body's health and well-being. What I previously didn't know is that microbes don't just affect our bodies, but rather play an integral role in the health of entire ecosystems and our planet. As he said, microbes are present everywhere in our environment, completing vital jobs I hadn't even known existed, such as giving nutrients to plants or storing carbon in the soil. This interview really opened my eyes to the vast array of potential climate solutions we have available to us. When people talk about climate solutions, it's really easy to focus on stuff we all know about, such as installing solar panels or buying an electric car. But what this interview made clear is that we have so many more resources in the natural world all around us that we can draw upon to solve this problem. Something as small as microbes provide a vast array of potential solutions and inspiration in their functions, their unique genetic material, and as key players in all ecosystems, all the way from a healthy farm to a recently burned forest. These creative solutions are so inspirational and really emphasize that everyone, no matter their expertise or background, has a role to play in preventing climate change. I'm so grateful for the exceptional beauty and capability present in nature, for the scientific tools which enable us to make these discoveries, and for the microbes which keep us and our environments functioning. Now back to the interview. I was visiting a farm and there was this soil on one side, it was kind of divided into the farm and all the birds landed on it. But the other side, they, no one landed. And, and the, the, uh, the farmer said, well, it's because it's dead. They put pesticides or whatever, whatever reason, they know that there, there's nothing in it for them. But we've only started to, you've been at this longer, but we've only started to really think about, you know, what this soil is, what it provides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a colleague, uh, Esmeret Asafa-Berry at uh, UC Merced, who has argued, you know, that we cannot treat our soil like dirt, right? It's really an essential and valuable resource. And if you think back to the you know, 1930s and the Dust Bowl, you know, there were large quantities of soil that were mismanaged and lost, you know, just blown away, eroded away, and negatively affected agriculture for, for years to come. So we really have to be very careful, especially, again, if we're going to be trying to feed you know, another 2 billion people or so, that, that that soil really has to be treated as a resource. And it takes a long time to restore it after it's been degraded. It's a lot better to take care of it in the first place and not have to try to make it recover. And, and so we need to adopt practices that, that value that soil and make sure that, you know, we, we don't take it for granted because <laughs> It really, you know, we really are dependent on it. We're dependent on the microbes in it. We're dependent on the, the, the physical properties of that soil. And if we just let it blow away or, you know, abuse it by adding too many pesticides and fertilizers, then, you know, that 
that's going to be a problem for our carbon emissions, can be a problem for providing the food that we need for people. And so I'm sure like many of us in this, this last two strange years, you've been thinking about you know, climate change and how certain pathogens and viruses can be released through climate change. Uh, what are some things that you're looking at or that your colleagues are cautious of that c- can arise through the heating up of our planet? Yeah, there are a lot of climate changes that can affect microbes, um, microbes including pathogens. So that goes for both human pathogens as well as agricultural pathogens, which again, come back to the food security issues. And you know, there are concerns that, you know, say as, as we have droughts, you're, if, if we do lose soil, if soil is being uh, removed from the surface and kind of going in, as dust into the air, and that dust can carry pathogens. And one of them, one of my colleagues, uh, or a group of my colleagues have studied is the valley fever pathogen, um, which is a fungus, causes some really nasty respiratory and and otherwise systemic symptoms, and often affects low-income farm workers because they're in direct contact with the soil. And when it's dry and crackled, then that's potentially releasing the spores of this pathogen into the air. So there's concern that as the climate warms and as droughts become more intense, that the release and spread of that pathogen could increase. And you can run mathematical models that, that show how the climate changes and then shows how that might impact microorganisms, including this pathogen. And that's, that's really, I think, where our field is going. You know, for me, it's more about the naturally occurring microbes, but you can apply the same principles to pathogenic microbes. You know, we need to, to make predictive models and make predictions about how the world is going to change you know, as, as we see the changes in, in precipitation and rainfall, snowfall, and temperature, you know, what does that mean for how this, this complex, delicate system will change? Because if we, if we manipulate that balance or you know, break that balance, it's going to potentially have some bad consequences for us. So we want to be able to predict what those consequences are. And that, that does require some, some skill and some knowledge of the fundamental biology as well as some of these mathematical tools to uh, make predictions. As you say, they've been around so long, we really have to respect their history because they, we might think that they're dead or dormant, but they're just there, just waiting. I mean, I've looked at like a diatom, say, for instance, and you think, oh, they're not, they're amazing, they're structures. And I think that they're, you know, they, they can be animated with water. They're, they're not dead at all. Right, and so it's it's basically a, a seed bank of genetic and metabolic diversity, and you know the Earth's entire microbiome is just a tremendous treasure trove of of history and evolution and diversity, and so we have, I I would say we have no idea what's in a lot of that diversity. It's like the the dark matter of the universe. You know, people call it the, the dark matter of microbial communities or microbiomes, and we're still figuring out what that material does. I mean, we know, we know that they're tremendously diverse, right? So the, the sequencing revolution that happened over the past 20 or 30 years has made it possible to measure the diversity, but we don't know what that diversity is really doing or, or how to harness it if, if we need it. So we'd be wise to not disrespect it, as you said, 
and to make sure that, that we put the effort into understanding it because you never know when the next cure for cancer is going to come out of a microbial metabolite or you know the next way to you know increase crop yield by 20 percent or something and we, we want to miss that by <clears throat> degrading the habitat where that microbe lives or ignoring the the needs and the environmental forces of the climate forces that affect those really important microbes. Yes, it seems like, you know, there was the, the race for space and we wanted to explore those worlds, but it seems like our planet is still very mysterious to us. If you go into the soil, if you go into the ocean, so much we don't know, so much we haven't mapped. So what for you are some of the you know, wonderful, magical mysteries that you find in the microbial world that people might be surprised to learn about? Well, I think that, you know, one thing we've looked at recently is the evolution of microbes and, you know, how quickly they can evolve is really surprising and interesting and inspiring, right? Because it means that there are ways to adapt and respond that may not even have been invented by nature yet, but that those, those are available to us. And we could, we could learn from that. I think it's very hard for us to replicate the process. Uh, we're, we're not skilled enough bioengineers to do that yet. But if we could figure out the rules that, that determine evolution, then maybe we could get better at it. But in the meantime, we can uh, look at these uh, microbial organisms as, as inspiration for how evolution can uh, change and adapt to pretty much anything, right? I mean, microbes have been around for these billions of years in all kinds of different climates and, and habitats. <clears throat> and so we just don't know yet how, how they got there <laughs> and how, that, how all that diversity arose. And I think that you know, if we start combining evolution and our knowledge of evolution with microbes, that could be really exciting. You know, it's not, it's the, the principles go beyond just the, you know, the different flower colors and peas you know, that was studied by the original geneticists like Mendel and others, it's a lot more interesting and, and complicated than how microbes exchange genetic material and evolve, right? They, they can actually take genes and just give them to another microbe. And I, I saw recently at a, a conference, a talk by Nobel laureate Jennifer Doudna, uh, who invented this CRISPR technique, which is a way to edit genomes and insert specific genes into uh, into organisms, any, you know, any kind of organism. But the, the whole system started out as a way for bacteria to evade viruses, right? Did you know that the bacteria get viruses just like we do? I mean, there are bacteriophages that uh, are viruses that attack bacteria and they insert their uh, genome into the bacterium and the bacterial machinery changes and spits out a bunch of viruses. And so that's obviously bad for the bacterium and they, have a whole immune system based on this CRISPR pathway that allows them to remember previous attacks by viruses and prevent those attacks in the future. So, you know, we can look to viruses or to bacteria or microbes as, as a way to maybe guide our own treatments for viruses like the coronavirus. And this CRISPR technology is, is revolutionary because we can actually edit genomes of all organisms, you can apply it in, you know, in the human, I mean, human systems, it's a little more controversial, but you can apply it in any non-microbial system as well. 
and it's just the technology that, that came out of this area that you know is really amazing it's really ingenious uh, you know and it's it, just all this going on as you say we can't see it with the human eye and just the many ways as you say we can learn from it because i feel like you know in this individualistic world we're always like so much about ourselves we, we can't collaborate very well i think we know that like nature collaborates on the microbial level the humble microbe collaborates evolves does all this stuff and uh, <laughs> it's not just only looking out for themselves so i feel there is a lot to learn there mm -hmm. yeah i think so too and yeah that that is another area of interest for us is is how do microbes collaborate because you know talking about these microbiomes and the tremendous diversity in another frontier is really figuring out how all of the players interact with each other. Because we do really think that the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So if you just study individual microbes in isolation, you're probably going to see something very different than if you put that microbe into its complex environment. And so that's what we're interested in doing now is saying, oh, if you, if you pair up these two microbes, you know, how do they change each other's behavior and evolution and their function and their contribution to the system. And maybe if you add a third one or a fifth one or a 10th one, how many does it take before the system actually functions the way that we observe if we look at the whole thing? And again, it comes back to those signals. You know, so I said microbes are always exchanging information through chemical signals. So what are those signals and what are they telling each other? <laughs> They're really interesting microbes do collaborate, they, they cooperate. And we can see this if you grow them together that you know, one, for example, will acquire a nutrient, the other one will acquire you know, sugars, and then they can exchange that material. And they both do better than if they were alone. Although on the other hand, they can also compete with each other, antagonize each other, they, you know, have mechanisms of warfare, you know, so we're thinking about what's happening in the world today. You know, maybe microbes are a little microcosm of that as well. They have weapons, chemical weapons that they use to attack each other. And if you think about, you know, our antibiotics that we use to fight pathogens, those are derived from microbes, you know, bacteria and fungi. They were trying to kill each other to get resources, but we have co-opted those, those weapons to uh, kill off our, our pathogens. Of course, they evolve around those, right? And that's why antibiotic resistance is a big deal. They, they get very good at evading those weapons and, and surviving despite those. And so we have to appreciate that evolutionary process even in our treatments for medicine, because when microbes are, are fighting, they, they try to uh, avoid those, those weapons and we don't want them doing that when our lives depend on it. So we've been talking about like the great potential of microbes and the amount of microbes that are present. So I'm from Utah and the differences in environments between a place like Southern Utah versus like Oregon, I can only imagine that there is a huge diversity in the microbial communities present in those in different environments. I was just wondering, is there any sort of conservation work that's being done on these microbial communities to try and see how climate change will affect these interactions that you're talking about? That's a great question. And I think it's a really another frontier to ask, do we need to conserve microbes, right? We know we need to conserve endangered species like the spotted owl or the, the gray wolf or something, but there's no microbe that's on the endangered species list. There's no microbe that is on the red list internationally. But I think that what we do need to do is 
consider microbes as part of a, a habitat. And given that we know microbes interact with plants and they interact with animal hosts and they're such a fundamental part of, of all systems, that that's a really an argument to conserve habitats as a whole. And for us ecologists to go out and measure the indicators of a healthy system, like we were talking about before, we really you know, can't just talk about health in a vague sense. We have to say, we, we need to measure the amount of carbon dioxide coming out of the soil and make sure that that is at the right level and that the right amount of uh, plant growth is balancing that. <clears throat> and that way we can say, oh, well, if we have you know, this microbial community that we can identify with, with DNA sequencing or other advanced techniques, that tells us that this system is, is functioning properly and that our conservation technique is working right or our restoration is going in the right direction. So I think that that's you know, what we really need to do is take a whole system perspective and then we can start to drill down and so you know, what are the individual microorganisms that are contributing there? And then that gives us the power maybe in the future to manipulate them and say, oh, well, we're missing this one key player. Can we introduce it, right? And can we somehow engineer the system to function the way we want it to? Um, it's just that that's going to be that's going to be challenging in nature, right? Because it is a complex system, and we have to do it carefully without causing other damage or side effects that we don't want. But yeah, there there are. I mean, Southern Utah is beautiful. I was out there last year, and Oregon's beautiful as well, but in very different ways. And what we what we know from our own research is that there are very different strategies for the way that microbes deal with those environments, right? There, in Southern Utah, you have extreme, you know, sun and heating, and, you know, it's a lot of uh, desert landscape plants that are especially adapted to that environment, right? Like cacti and creosote bush, right? They, you can see with your eyes, and if you're an ecologist, you know, with your instruments and measurements, the way that the plants deal with that, and it's really clever and really fascinating. And similarly, if you go to Oregon, then you know, you've got redwood trees and you know, forests and the system is responding to that different climate. And microbes do the same thing, right? They have strategies to deal with stress and you know, probably those, the microbes living in the surface of the soil in the deserts of Southern Utah, they are adapted to deal with high heat. They're adapted to deal with drought. So if we can look at you know, what are they doing to survive in that environment, that might tell us what our future looks like with climate change, or it might tell us, you know, what we need to put into the, the vineyard in, in Southern Oregon to make it ready to, to handle the, the higher temperatures and drier conditions that are coming and, and still maintain our, you know, our vineyard production or our crop production or whatever it is that, that we want to conserve in that system as the climate changes. And so an area of your focus is about how microbes uh, can help mitigate climate change. And if you could discuss some of those technologies, I was reading about some exciting approaches to kind of smart cement in, in coastal areas, or, or there are different ones uh, that would help us capture the carbon. Could you tell about this, uh, some of the exciting ones that, that you would actually, you know, <laughs> prioritize? Yeah, so I, you know, get a lot of funding from the Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy is sort of a mixed bag because they have a lot of fossil fuel research they do and they, they manage the nation's nuclear weapons arsenal. So there's, there's a lot of things that they do, but one of the things that they do, which I think is really valuable, is they have an entire multi-million dollar research program on biofuels. 
So they are looking at all stages of the process of making sustainable biofuel. And biofuel production requires plants and microbes. So they have to figure out what plants can we grow that don't compete with our, our food plants and that can survive climate shocks, that can grow on lousy soils that we can't use for anything else, and that can actually generate a substantial amount of fuel, right? Because we have we use a lot of fuel. And you know, we're increasingly adopting new technologies like electric vehicles and such. Yeah, but that's taking some time. And there are some technologies and some uh, sectors where we will have a really hard time getting rid of our emissions and air travel is a big one of those right you cannot fly a jet plane on a battery like it just it's not it doesn't work and it's not going to work for a long time but if you could make fuel for the jet that was derived from a sustainable source instead of uh, fossil sources then that that would help to reduce the impact of of air travel likewise with other sorts of heavy industry where you know the the battery technologies are not quite there yet. So the DOE is investing a lot of money in figuring out how to grow plants that can be used and processed to make fuel. And part of that process involves specialized microbes and, and pulling the genetic material probably from a variety of different places and sources to really efficiently engineer a pipeline not, not like a literal pipeline, like oil flows through, but a pipeline of biotechnology techniques and approaches that gets us from, you know, a plant like switchgrass or something into uh, sugars and finally, you know, some kind of usable fuel. And there's a lot of steps in that processing, but a lot of that is, is metabolism, right? And our, our, Traditional fossil fuels, they are coming from plants as well, right back, you know, 300 million years ago, but it was geological forces that processed those into oil and coal. So what we're, what the DOE is trying to do is come up with biological forces, you know, the, the plant species and the, the microbes that can process that material and generate a useful fuel for us and potentially also generate side byproducts uh, that can be used as plastics or in industry or in the chemical manufacturing process. So that's that's like a big emphasis and making sustainable biofuels. Again, it's, it's still a challenge, but they're, they're making progress on that. So we had done some interviews about like research into the kelp elevators and using kelp as a biofuel. And mm -hmm. it's, it's all really interesting. It's done right there in California or offshore in California. But it also raises questions. And I don't know if this is because uh, the way microbes can prolifer proliferate and the way also kelp can proliferate if one depended on biofuels made from it that you would have a kind of monocrop situation or a dominance of one particular microbe if it was discovered to be useful and so how, how would that be managed yeah i think that's that's a good question because we don't generally want monocultures of species out there because that can mean they're vulnerable to pathogens it can reduce the biodiversity and the value of our, our habitats. And, you know, kelp, I know that kelp uh, forests are extremely endangered here in, in California due to climate change and pollution and other human impacts. So we definitely wouldn't want to use, you know, kelp farming in a way that would 
reduce the value of our, our natural endangered kelp forests. So if you could do it in a way that, you know, there was a way to sustainably harvest that, that kelp and also provide some benefits for biodiversity, you know, the fish and the other ocean organisms that, that depend on kelp, then great. But yeah, we, what we don't want to do, and this goes back to the, the biofuels in, in agriculture, you know, there's a lot of corn planted throughout the Midwest. You know, a lot of that's feed corn for uh, livestock, but you don't want to just cover the entire Midwest with corn for you know biofuel ethanol because that's that's going to compete with our our food crops. It's going to you know have basically zero biodiversity value. So the key is to think you know how can we generate a biofuel feedstock? You know the 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 supply of plants. It also has other values, right? That you know, maybe the, the grass, maybe you grow a couple of different types of grass and you grow it in on soils that have been degraded, you know, from industry or the brown fields or something. And then you know, you kind of get grow the biofuel crop and use it and harvest it until the soil is restored, and then then you kind of let it uh, go back to, to a more natural state. So we have to think of ways to be creative about providing biodiversity benefits, or at least not compromising biodiversity as we uh, generate energy and, and try to provide food. So we have to be very cautious about that, for sure. We have to not you know, jump into technologies without really thinking the, the complex web and networks, this, this web of life that we don't always see, but is there and is supporting us. So, you know, as you reflect on the beauty and wonder of the natural world. What are some memories that you, you know, that inspired you to uh, pursue the study of ecosystems? When I was a kid, it was great that my parents always took me out west and, you know, our whole family, my sister and my parents and I would go travel, uh, usually to the Rocky Mountains somewhere or maybe to California and hit all the national parks on the way and Seeing all those national parks, I think, was really what, what did it for me and appreciating the value of all these different ecosystems and, you know, from Mount St. Helens, which had recently erupted and, you know, it was kind of this barren landscape and it was just recovering and bouncing back over time, you know, to the, the hot springs in Yellowstone, where you can actually see these primordial microbes making uh, biofilm mats of different colors and just doing great in that super hot water, <laughs> uh, just like they did in the primordial soup two billion years ago. So that, that was really inspiring. And, and to see those systems really made it clear in my mind that we need to, to preserve and conserve our environment. And it's really been interesting, even over my lifetime, to see how you know, the, the glaciers in like Glacier National Park have diminished. You know, in Alaska, I've been up there several times. And you can actually see the impacts of climate change even over my you know four or so decade <laughs> lifespan which is scary but again at the same time i'm optimistic because there are so many different species and, and microbes and potential for nature to adapt and and bounce back and be resilient we just have to give it the space to do that and and do what we can in our lives and in our institutions to start addressing this problem in a big way. Give them a little time because the, the planet does regenerate, of course, and is so much smarter than us. So, you know, also as you think about the future 
and you know, education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. What were some teachers or life lessons that have been important to you? What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I think that certainly in high school, you know, I had a biology teacher who really went above and beyond and set up field trips and allowed me to do independent research, even as a high school student. And then, you know, my professors in college, several of them were really inspiring and, you know, again, letting me get into that that research environment in the laboratory in the field. Yeah, thinking about these really broad societal issues, like, you know, how does how do our individual choices affect other people and affect the environment? You know, what what what's our sort of moral guiding compass for addressing environmental issues? And so I I, I think very broadly about the environment. You know, I studied these tiny organisms in, in the lab, and you know, we do a lot of more reductionist science, you might call it. But I also really think about and worry about society as a whole and, and how it is that you know, we make decisions, what, what is guiding our, our choices in life. And now these days talking to my colleagues in social sciences and you know, anthropology and the humanities about this because they have really great ideas to contribute to an issue like climate change. It's really a truly transdisciplinary problem and you know, I, I want to encourage all my science colleagues to, to reach out and, and interact and collaborate with those folks because it's not a problem that science alone can solve. And I've argued this before, and it's just become more apparent throughout the course of my life that the science is necessary, but it's not sufficient to address a problem like climate change because it's so dependent on what people do and what they value in their culture and you know, how they process information and communicate with each other. Science, but human behavior and, and this complex web. So thank you, Professor Stephen Allison, for helping us understand the fundamental roles of microbial life and how it's entwined with human life, ecosystems, and climate change. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Corinna Howell with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Corinna Howell. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Rouse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.